in the farmland near where I live, this has been a busy week. It was time to harvest feed corn. So the landscape here has been filled with combines, sailing across the hills like on an ocean of dried corn stalks, leaving a field of stubble in their wake, and filling huge wagons with dry yellow corn kernels, destined for commodity markets, or silos of animal feed. If you stand on the edge of this cornfield in Clinton County, Illinois, there's a field of corn behind us. And behind that cornfield, there's another field planted with soybeans. And across the road, rapeseed, soon to be bottles of canola oil. But in front of you, not 50 yards from the cornfield, St. Joseph's Hospital. It's been here in the town of Breeze for 125 years, surrounded by farms and farmers and the people who make farming possible in an economy driven by agriculture, but not limited to agriculture. 50 million people in America live in a rural county, and those 50 million people might be an hour from a major medical center, or three hours by car, maybe half an hour by helicopter. But here in town, there's a hospital, like St. Joseph's, licensed for 70 beds. It has an emergency department, a surgery center. There's a rural health medical practice that's based here. There's a YMCA attached to the hospital, offering physical and occupational therapy. There's a home health program and hospice. But for more complicated care or for tests, you often have to drive an hour to St. Louis. And that pattern, that model, is repeated all over the country. If I'm at a meeting and the issues of transportation or housing don't come up in the context of rural health care, I'm at the wrong meeting. On today's program, an exploration of medicine in the countryside. Well, there's two important uh, stories to be told when it comes to rural health care. Number one, the story that's not being told, and that is the uh, amazing quality of care that you can find in rural clinics and hospitals across the United States, number one. But number two, you have to overlay that with the workforce shortages and vulnerable populations and the fact that um, life expectancy is lower for Americans living in rural communities, and there's just no rationale for why that should be occurring. And if a patient does need to be transferred from their rural home to a major medical center, what about their support network? Can families afford hotels to stay at their loved one's side? Oftentimes you'll see babies in the NICU, and the mother and father can stay at Hickle House get some rest, and then go back over to be with the baby. Access to care today on the Hear Me Now podcast as we discuss rural medicine. I'm Sean Collins. Glad you're listening. Alan Morgan is the chief executive officer of the National Rural Health Association, and he joins me now from Virginia. Mr. Morgan, welcome. Thank you so much for the opportunity to join with you today. There are a million issues that we could talk about today, and you know that better than I do. Tell me what you think the most important one is. What should we be thinking about 
when we think about healthcare in rural areas? Yeah, well, there's two important uh, stories to be told when it comes to rural health care. Number one, the story that's not being told, and that is the uh, amazing quality of care that you can find in rural clinics and hospitals across the United States, number one. But number two, you have to overlay that with the workforce shortages and vulnerable populations and the fact that um, life expectancy is lower for Americans living in rural communities. And there's just no rationale for why that should be occurring. Let's talk about both of those first. All right. And let's start with the second one. The workforce issue is, is an acute one, I think. How do you begin to convince clinicians that they should consider practicing outside of big cities? Yeah, such a good question. It's a sad story because we're doing uh, clinical recruitment and retention all wrong in the United States. Um, what we're doing currently is we're attracting and we're the, the, the brightest, highest scoring kids um, into medical school. And they tend to be upper income urban kids. And then we have their medical school training in urban areas. And then we try to place them in, in rural communities across the U.S. And we're dumbfounded that they don't want to stay there. Yeah. Instead of actually attracting rural kids, training them in rural areas through rural residency training programs, and then seeing the success of them staying there. We're just doing it wrong. Where is it being done right? Can you tell me about one of those programs? Yeah. Fortunately, the federal government has recognized that this is a, a, a problem with a solution. And uh, starting about five years ago, the, the creation of the Rural Residency Training Program grants from the federal governments were <clears throat> first laid out. And in fact, it's happening all across the U.S. right now. Um, a good example is, is Colorado, where the Rural Residency tra uh, Program there is just really uh, succeeding in an effort of getting rural kids, training them in rural areas, and placing them back in the rural communities. You know, I, I think about healthcare now compared to what it was even 20, 30 years ago. And it has become increasingly complex, I think is probably the word. It's also become more expensive. And a lot of that capability probably isn't available in rural areas in the same way that it's available in larger urban metropolitan areas with larger medical centers. If, if medicine is moving in that more technologically mediated mode of treatment, how is it possible that that level of care is available in rural areas? Yeah, well, I think you have to start with what, what rural health care is and what it does extraordinarily well. And rural health care is primary care, general surgery. And looking at uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services data, they do it exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. And probably not surprisingly, because clinicians know their community, that they, they see you at the ball game drinking that uh, supersized Coke. Um, they know your family history. They know you. They, you know, they, they, there's a different level of care. And that's the reason why we see such um, high quality metrics. But to your point, what they don't do is specialized care. There just isn't the both the patient population nor um, the infrastructure to support that. So as a result, um, many times we'll see visiting specialists come into the community, uh, more notably the rise of telehealth and telehealth applications, being able to bring mm -hmm. some of the state's best uh, specialists into that rural community. And that's 
so very important. You have to have both. You have to write. You have to have that local access for primary care when you need it and emergency services. And then you need to have those network connections with um, health systems or universities to be able to bring in those specialists as needed. Right. You know, this program has focused a lot over the last couple of years on the idea of whole person care, that we're not just a, a list of symptoms. We're human beings with connections in our communities that often gets interrupted for rural patients if they're transferred to uh, an urban area for treatment. They may be in a hospital 200 miles away from their home for several weeks or a month or more. And you're starting to see larger medical centers build out sort of hospitality in a way or a way to provide subsidized or low-cost housing for for patients' families. Um, you see, you know, I think we first saw it in like the Ronald McDonald House model for families of pediatric patients, but I think other places are doing it now too. And I, I want you to say something about that, that, that need for making accommodations for rural patients when they do have to be transferred and making sure that their family can go with them. Yeah, the last 30 years of clinical data um, clearly shows the importance and the relevance of having a support network, having those that um, love you and trust you be with you um, during the healthcare uh, engagement. So it's of paramount importance. And I got to tell you, if I'm at a meeting and the issues of transportation or housing don't come up in mm. the context of rural healthcare, I'm at the wrong meeting. Um, they're both so very important to this. Um, and for all the reasons that you just articulated. Who's doing what? Where are you seeing progress being made? Like, are there any novel ideas out there that you're seeing? Oh, this hospital center is trying this approach or, or, or this one's trying another approach. Yeah, I think, it's, I don't think, I know. The data shows clearly that there is a transition within our healthcare system. And we focus so much on the rising cost of it and the, um, bad outcomes from from a life expectancy, but we don't always focus in on the success stories. And that that um, approach of involving the community and keeping the community um, engaged um, is is a path that more and more institutions are are following. And I want to point out also one thing you didn't touch touch on in that question is engaging the community in the front end of healthcare as well, too. Um, mm. Engaging community health workers, you know, mm. trusted people within the community that may not be clinicians, but help make sure that the family knows um, how to seek care, when to get your medications filled, and they address, hopefully, the transportation and housing issues as well, too. So, and it's not just one particular case of this. I just think it's a trend that we're seeing across America and most notably in rural communities today. Right, right. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think rural people are used to having um, maybe uh, non-credentialed health workers um, who are uh, looking out for the, for the good of others and their neighbors. And it's not a, it's not a far stretch to see those rural health workers who are, have training take on a role that sort of has naturally been part of rural life in America. Oh, absolutely. You know, none less than the, uh, no less than the um, Institute of Medicine and their landmark study of quality through collaboration. 
identified that in one sense, rural providers have an unfair competitive advantage against their urban providers because they're more inclined to network, to collaborate, and to engage directly with the community um, for better patient care. So in, in an urban context, there, there are a lot more social programs in place um, than you will have in a small rural town. But in that rural town where you have that close community and you can rely, again, on the usage of community health workers to be that bridge between the family and the provider, it just makes all the difference yeah. in the world. Yeah. You know, we're in the middle of an explosion of the population demographic of, of boomers. Um, you know, being an octogenarian is going to be one of the hippest things you can be pretty soon. Um, I'm curious if you can tell me something about the age-friendly health initiative that you all are working on with the Hartford Foundation. Absolutely. I think as we move forward, everyone recognizes and sees it today that we need a more age-friendly healthcare system, one that um, recognizes and appreciates the unique concerns and issues of an aging population. And that's both in providing the support services on the front end, and once they're inside the walls of a facility, of providing with them the dignity and respect that's necessary. And this certainly is a movement that um, we're seeing in large urban health systems. And what we want to do is bring the best of that to rural communities as well, too, to make sure that when a, a senior presents in a rural facility, that they're, they're respected and they're valued as a per- person and as a member of the community. Hmm. I'm struck by the fact that you said when a, when a senior presents in a rural community, is there a, also a role for seeking those people out and checking in on them and finding out, oh, you, you really do need to come in and see somebody rather than waiting for them to present? Yeah, themselves. yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things when we're bringing in our uh, engagement, it requires uh, perhaps non-traditional partners, most notably Meals on Wheels, the Senior Center, um, any other um, entity within that community that engages uh, with the senior to be able to have a, a comprehensive approach to keeping track of them. And I will note this, one of the challenges we've had over the last 30 years is seniors needing to move out of their rural communities as they age. Mm-hmm. And, and what we're hopeful is to promote with new technologies, whether they be um, uh, electronic monitoring and, and uh, uh, cell phones and video capabilities that we're able to um, keep track of them and their health and allow them, empower them to take care of their own healthcare needs as well within their community. Yeah. There certainly does seem to be a move towards making the home the point of care for a lot of medicine. Absolutely, yep. Um, and I, I think we're only going to see more and more of that in, in the years ahead. Um, I noticed, you know, when I was preparing for the chance to talk to you, I, I noticed part of your biography and see that you you come from Kansas. Did you come from a rural part of Kansas or, or an urban part of Kansas? <laughs> I did. That's not a prerequisite to work at the National Rural Health Association. But I will say coming from a what was then a two-stoplight town does allow you to appreciate both the strengths and the challenges of a rural community. Yeah. And then you you 
became a journalist and, and I'm curious how you ended up at the uh, Rural Health Association. How did, what was your path there? Yeah. So um, I wanted to be a newspaper reporter growing up. I worked for the college newspaper and covered the state house. And I, I think that uh, daily asking the tough and difficult questions of the governor at that time, they decided they wanted me on their side instead of on the side of asking the tough questions. So <laughs> I, 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 for, uh, I, I gave up my dream of being a small town reporter and worked for the governor's office, transitioned to DC, worked for Congress. And, but you know, there's, there's a linkage between, um, at the heart of it, a journalist who wants to help communities and, and, and help move um, uh, people forward to working in healthcare, where you're, yeah. you're directly trying to increase access to care and quality of care. So it's, it's not that far of a stretch. Yeah. I'm just going down the list of programs that you all have a finger on, and it's impressive. I mean, I'm just going to run through it really quickly. There's a rural emergency preparedness and response effort, rural health fellows, rural health students, health equity council, rural medical education, border health initiative, rural community health, community health workers, rural oral health initiative, and it goes on and on and on. When you all get together, I think you have several meetings that you sponsor over the course of a year. How many people are you helping to facilitate their work in rural communities? Yeah, so the easy answer is we have more than 20,000 members. Um, directly wow. to, your, to your question, more than 90% of the nation's rural hospitals, rural health clinics, and rural community health centers are our members. But um, honestly, if, if you care about rural health, there's a home for you in the National Rural Health Association. And what we do through all of those programs are we identify best practices. We share those best practices at our conferences for the hope of replication. And um, in that process, we occasionally find policies or uh, 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 legislative measures that it prohibit those best practices or a barrier to the best practices. And when that happens, then we engage policymakers um, in, in advocacy uh, to try to remove those barriers. Hmm. Um, the one that jumps off the list for me is the Rural Health Fellows. Tell me about those fellowships and what, what goes on. Oh, thank you so much. You know, they're, they're, uh, over the past uh, uh, decade, we've had 154 rural hospitals close across the U.S. And there are 154 different reasons why they close. One unifying theme always, and it is leadership matters. Um, the, the, the defining factor between a, a clinic or a hospital closures is leadership. And it doesn't have to come from the C-suite. It just within that organization. And as such, we put a priority on growing rural leaders. So we identify across the country leaders within their communities, and we bring them together in a program to hopefully provide them the tools and resources to become leaders at the federal level to help us, as I said earlier, to remove those, those uh, policy and legislative barriers that are prohibiting the best practices from being replicated. Hmm. So the, the pool of people who are fellows what are they doing now, you know, before they start their fellowship? What sort of work are they involved in? Yeah, so we are the National Rural Health Association. So we have a, a roughly 75 to 100 applicants every year. We only choose 15 to 20. 
And we try to build a class um, that is diverse, both in geographic sense, uh, from racial uh, sense as well, too, but also from from provider type. So we'll build a class with a, a couple of hospital CEOs, a couple of rural clinicians, um, uh, 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 maybe a state person, a state individual that works at the state office of rural health and oversees mm-hmm. That and and certainly public health. We always try to put public health. We try to put EMS. We try to put. Well, you get the you get the picture here. And again, it goes back to something you had brought up earlier, and that is the collaboration that you find in a rural community. And that's really what we're we're moving towards. How do you build systems of care in these small towns? That's Alan Morgan. He's the chief executive officer of the National Rural Health Association. Mr. Morgan, I'm really grateful for you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity and go rural. Go rural, indeed. We're headed now to Anchorage, Alaska and to the Providence Hickel House on the campus of the Alaska Medical Center in Anchorage. That's where Teresa Gleason and Erica Manor work, and they join me now. Thanks to you both for taking the time to talk with me today. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Teresa Gleason, what is Hickel House? Tell me about it. So Hickel House is a, a guest housing facility. It looks like a hotel, but it's a, a guest housing facility with 43 units for patients and their families who are from outside of the Anchorage area and are here for medical treatment. So you're providing a place for families to be while they have someone who's in, getting inpatient care in the hospital. That's correct. Teresa, you are the senior manager there. Erica, you're a customer service rep. Erica, tell me what that means. I work at the front desk. Um, I check guests in when they arrive. I, um, when they, you know, I answer the phones. I put them on what we call the waiting list um, for the whatever date they're requesting a room for. So I just do um, a lot of the administrative work in the office. I, I suspect you're the first person they see when, when they walk in the door. Yep. That's great. That's usually one of us. <laughs> one of you. Um, look, as as medicine changes um, in the lower 48 and everywhere, um, places like Hickel House are going to become uh, more and more needed as rural people uh, have to travel to large medical centers for subspecialty care. Um, and I, I really hope the two of you can talk to me a little bit about why a place like Hickel House is important. I can talk to you know why it is so important. Um, many of our many of the communities in Alaska are only accessible by airplane or by boat. Um, so when somebody leaves their community and come to Anchorage for treatment, um, you know, Providence is the, the largest healthcare facility um, in the Alaska region. So many patients are coming from these outlying communities to Providence for treatment. Many of them don't know anybody in Anchorage whom they could stay with while they're getting medical treatment or while their loved one is. Uh, so having a place like Hickel House um, meets that need for them, um, either for themselves or for their loved ones. So so oftentimes you'll see 
um, babies in the NICU, um, pediatrics, mm. things like that. And, and the mother and father can stay at Hickle House, get some rest, and then go back over to the hospital and be with the, with the baby. So yeah. it really does address that need. Um, it's close to the hospital, so they can literally walk you know, cross the sky bridge and, and get over to the hospital. So, yeah. That's great. And um, tell me, how is this paid for? Do our patients and families paying for their stay or is, is this being subsidized in some way? So I would say the majority of our guests at Hickle House um, have a Medicaid voucher. So Medicaid does pay um, for housing um, hmm. at Hickle House. Uh, we also receive uh, funding from the foundation. We have sometimes guests um, who can't afford the full daily rate. So the foundation will usually offer up to 13 nights of coverage um, that they'll pay for. That's the Providence, Alaska Foundation. Uh, and then we do have uh, pay, uh, guests who pay privately. So with credit card yeah. or cash. Yeah. Erica, what what's your take on this? Why why is this place important? Um, I think it's important because, um, as Teresa mentioned, we don't a lot of the rural areas don't have facilities to um, you know assist people with the type of care that they need, so they have to be here. And so um, you know the NICU moms they can stay in the NICU. However, you know they have families at home like other kids, and you know in order for them to have somewhere to stay when they when the mom comes over here and she wants to see her other kids because, you know, her baby might be in the NICU for a while. She doesn't know. So, you know, when her family comes into town, they get to stay with her over at Hickle House. She gets to visit with them, you know, get that support that she needs since they're still out there. And I always tell them, like, hey, you know, you have the best babysitters over there at the NICU. So just get some rest <laughs> over here while you're while the, the baby's there. Or, you know, um, a lot of the cancer patients um, that are here getting treatment, they are away from their families as well. So it's just really difficult on a lot of people being away from home. And a lot of people here build like a community with each other. And so it's, it's really great. And I definitely think it's necessary. It absolutely is necessary. And I'm, you mentioned building community. Um, tell me something about that. What, what is the vibe like? I, I'm assuming you have common areas where people are rubbing elbows with other families. Tell, tell me about that interaction. Uh, yeah, yeah, we have a full kitchen in the lobby because you know, we do have long-term guests sometimes who want to, you know, get tired of fast food and want to make their own. So we have some cabinets that they can um, check out with us. We have um, refrigerators, big, larger refrigerators in the kitchen. So, you know, because they have a mini fridge in a room, but for the kitchen, they have, you know, more room so they can put their stuff and make food. And sometimes, you know, guests will make food for other guests, you know, the smells wafting through the building. And a lot of the guests are really friendly. They'll make additional food for um, some of the other guests. They'll, you know, they talk about each other's situations and they just, they make friends. Even today, um, this woman left and she came back and brought um, a gift for one of the, for the woman who was in the room right next to her. Um, she left yeah. her some flowers and a, a little gift for her. And I mean, they've only been here for three days together, but they're already friends now. Yeah. I, I know that experience firsthand. Um, uh, I spent 
three months in the waiting room outside an intensive care unit in Boston. And you really do get to know everyone else who's sitting in that waiting room with you. And uh, to the point that you overhear phone calls, you overhear arguments among families, and it, it becomes in some way a very raw experience and at the same time a very loving experience because people are being vulnerable in front of one another. And it does help build community. It does. It does. I, I, I like the way they do it here, how the guests here, how they lean on each other and they're there for each other. Um, and, you know, sometimes they don't even know their names. They'll come in the office and ask us, uh, who was the person I was just speaking with? <laughs> so, but, but they know all the whole situation about the person. They just don't necessarily know the name. They know the whole story, right. though. I got to tell you, um, I looked at some of the photographs um, that I have available to me of, of what the place looks like. And you, you said it looked like a hotel, Teresa, which is true. I thought it looked also like a small dorm on a college campus. Yeah. I mean, it's got a very sort of vaguely institutional look, but also trying very hard to be um, uh, homey. And what sealed the deal for me was the fact that you obviously have a playground outside of the the building. And that really touched my heart because it speaks to the fact that you've got families with all sorts of aged uh members who are hanging out with you for could be weeks and the fact that you've got a playground there really says something yes there's a a playground uh, outside and then inside we actually do have uh like a kid's room that has a lot of toys and um just an open space you know for the kids to play inside um and then right next to that is a uh exercise room for you know, the, the grownups that are there mm -hmm. so that they can walk on the treadmill, get some exercise that way with our long winters, you know, that's important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm just cognizant of the fact that this is a really stressful time for these families, right? Mm -hmm. And they're, they're working through potential loss. They're scared. They're uncertain what's happening. And you all are providing a place for them to try to take a deep breath and try to relax as much as that's possible when you're that stressed out. And they're surrounded by people who are sharing a lot of those feelings. How important is that place that you provide? How necessary is it for, for people to heal? Very necessary. Um, the one great thing about Providence is that um, they have provide so many things. I mean, you can request a chaplain to come over. Um, we, um, so it was Sister Angela works over there at Horizon House. She comes over periodically to tell us about things. Um, uh, people meet, you know, God forbid they have to have, you know, funeral arrangements or something like that, but we um, can help them have a place somewhere here um, where they can talk about that if they don't want to discuss it in their room, they want to be outside their mm -hmm. room. I just like that we try to be whatever we can be that they need that helps them. You know, once they're here, you pretty much just pay for the room. And if you need, if you have like laundry to do, you'll, you'll have to pay for that as well. But other than that, we don't charge any additional fees or anything. There's donations. There's just all sorts of things. We just try to make sure we can accommodate people through these difficult times as much as possible. Erica Manor works at the front desk 
at the Providence Hickel House on the campus of the Alaska Medical Center. We also heard from Teresa Gleason, who directs the guest housing facility in Anchorage. A year ago, Geraldine Pika stayed at Hickel House. She and her husband needed to be at the side of their youngest son, who had a medical emergency while working on a commercial fishing vessel out of Kodiak. I reached Geraldine by phone. You know, a load was just lifted off of us. Um, we had a place to stay. We didn't have to have an end date. Um, and it was close to our son. We could walk back and forth throughout the day to see him. And it was just a wonderful, clean place to stay where you met other people that were on some type of journey. I did have the opportunity to visit with the staff quite often. Because we spent so much time in the hospital at our son's bedside, we, um, you know, we, we used it to shower and sleep, and that's about it. That's what you needed. That's what we needed, not knowing that I had to reserve a room for the next week or the next couple of days. Yeah. They, they, they let us know ahead of time that our room would not be given up, that we would have it as long as we needed it. And that was, that was so wonderful. How's your son doing now? He is home. He is um, recuperating, getting his strength back. Um, thank goodness it was a happy ending. It could have gone the other way, um, but he's doing fine. Geraldine Pika and her husband stayed at the Providence Hickel House on the campus of the Alaska Medical Center in Anchorage last year while her youngest son was being treated there. Earlier, we heard from Erica Manor and Teresa Gleason, both at Hickel House, and we began with a conversation with Alan Morgan, Chief Executive Officer of the National Rural Health Association. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Health System and its family of organizations. Find us online and subscribe at hearmenowpodcast.org. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical library staff Carrie Grinstead, Basha Dolovska Elliott, Sarah Viscuso, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening today. Be well. <laughs>